No my hi my and welcome to the Seed Pod Season 3, a podcast where we explore the wonders of nature and our connections to the earth. Each episode, we invite guests to share their stories of nature connection and to nerd out with us about everything from art and conservation advocacy to the fascinating world of fungi. I'm your host and fellow nature enthusiast, Sean Crowley, and I'm excited to dive deep into the natural world with all of you. So sit back, relax, and let's get lost in the beauty of nature. Kia ora koutou. welcome back to The Seed Pod. This is episode 21, and I'm here with Oscar. Welcome, Oscar. Thanks very much for having me, Sean. I am a student in wildlife management at the University of Otago. I've been studying here for the last four years, and next year I'll be starting my master's by thesis. Amazing. Thanks so much for joining me today. Now, I always like to start off with a story from your Nature Connection journey. So would you like to share a story with us? Well, it all started for me when I was around nine years old. We went on a field trip with my primary school to a special place called Tiritini Matangi Island. It is an eco-sanctuary in the Hauraki Gulf, uh, right by Auckland. And it was one of the first of its kind. It's a very special place that has had over 300,000 trees planted now by volunteers over the last few decades. I think what made that field trip particularly memorable was that my teacher at the time was actually one of the volunteers that had been involved from the very start. Being able to go there with her was very memorable and seeing it through her eyes and how it had changed over time. 11 species of endangered bird have been translocated there, all sorts of other things like reptiles and uh, different endangered plants are found there. There's the tuatara, there's all sorts and that is really where my passion started for the natural world and birds in particular. My favorite bird has always been the kōkako, and on that field trip, we didn't actually see any. Uh, I had really wanted to, but we didn't see any that time, so I knew I had to keep going back. I decided to go back at least once a year, and after about five years, they asked me to become a volunteer guide on the island, so I was able to spend a few years going back a couple times a month to help share that my experience there with others, visitors to the island and show them and teach them about all the special things that live there. It didn't take long to find the Kōkāko. They, they are endangered and they are hard to find, but they did become quite numerous there. And it's still my favourite today. I totally agree. Tiri Tiri Mātangi is an awesome place to visit. The bird song is just absolutely outstanding. So if you do get to visit, I highly recommend taking your time, fully immersing yourself in the forest. And hopefully along the way, you might get to hear the haunting calls of the Kōkāko as well. So you mentioned getting interested in New Zealand wildlife through that trip to Te Tiri Mātangi Island with your teacher. But was that really the thing that got you fully stuck on birding or was there something else that kind of flipped that switch for you? I was definitely interested in wildlife from that point. It took a few years to get a proper foothold and to sort of encompass birding as well. It was around, yeah, age 15, 16, that I properly embraced birding and going to look for many different kinds of birds, specific kinds of birds, observe their behavior, count them, um, help with their conservation, things like that. It, yeah, evolved naturally 
from that point onwards. I don't know when the switch flicked specifically, but I am also very interested in seeing birds that don't show up very often. Some people might call them twitches. That's fine. I, <laughs> I don't mind. Um, but if you're going to go to a part of the country just to see a single bird, you're probably going to be disappointed. I did go to the West Coast last year to look for a cuckoo that uh, I never found, but we saw so many other amazing wildlife, so, so many other birds, uh, including these needle tails, which had come over on the storm front from Australia, uh, feel, rock wren, kotuku, such an amazing range of birds that you don't see every day that I had an amazing trip regardless. Yeah, that is awesome. And I love the fact that you have been involved in some like massive bird surveys, right? You might know the movie The Big Year stars Jack Black and Steve Martin, fantastic movie, Owen Wilson. Yeah, my friend group is quite keen on doing things like that, but we just little playful competition. Sometimes we do big days where that's however many species you can find in one day. It's never been super intense, although I know they did break the record and managed to go 24 hours and see something like 110 species or something, which is quite good for New Zealand. My friend Harry and our friend Dave recently broke the record for the big year in New Zealand and managed to get over 250 species, just 250 in one year, which um, smashed the record. And they were hindered by lockdowns as well. So it's pretty impressive. That's absolutely incredible when you say that it's not very intense but they went 24 hours <laughs> that's pretty intense I haven't gotten to that stage yet yeah I'm sure at some point like you stopped really focusing on what you're seeing and hearing it would become quite difficult quite the opposite I think it becomes second nature oh yeah <laughs> yeah fair enough in the bush long enough and and it's just innate you just know what's there yeah. So good. Yeah. Now, you've been interested in birding for quite some time, and I wondered if you have a memorable species interaction that you'd like to share. There's far too many to choose from. I could do a couple that stands out. Last year, I applied to be, well, the year before now, I applied to be a Blake and Z ambassador. And was able to go to a special, another special island called Pukanui, Anchor Island in Fiordland, which is one of the very few places that have kakapo. I'm sure everyone listening is familiar, but it's it's a nocturnal parrot. It's the largest parrot in the world. It's the only flightless parrot. It's got all these weird quirks, and they are truly a sight to behold. And they're about the size of a small dog, and they blend in perfectly with their environment. They've like got all sorts of shades of moss, green and yellow. And uh, even though you're on a small island with 80 of them, which is probably about a third of the population now, they can be very hard to find, let alone see if they're right in front of you. They main tactic is to freeze. That serves them well against avian predators, such as eagles and owls, but uh, mammalian predators, which we brought to New Zealand in the last few hundred years, have decimated them as they hunt, mainly by smell, and the kakapo definitely smell. They smell a little bit like a musty old clarinet case. And it took me about a week being on this island, volunteering with the team to actually see one. Uh, I had a permission to go out and spend the night in a tent near one of the nests, not too close. I didn't go to the nest, but 
there was in an area where a lot of sub-adult kakapo were hanging out and just causing general mayhem. So I went to spend the night in this tent and was very lucky to spot probably half a dozen different kakapo. They kept me up until 2am running around the tent and squawking and booming. They make this really loud, low traveling boom sound, which they used to attract the females. And uh, we had lots of fun. It took them about five minutes to get used to me. And then they were just much more interested in each other, chasing each other around. It's so cute. And they are super clumsy as well. So it's quite funny watching them run around after each other. And I love the way that you described the way they camouflage, right? Because their feathers are next level incredible they're they're beautiful and as you say there's so many different kind of like patchy different colors and it blends in perfectly to the bush and they're so well adapted to those environments but as you say when we've introduced these mammalian predators and their stinky creatures it's very easy to be able to find them and very easy to hunt them if they freeze so thanks so much for sharing that it's such an amazing experience that you got to be able to spend some time with those incredible creatures I know several of our guests have talked about the kakapo and how special they are and talked about the ambassador of the species as well Sirocco who has been able to go around the country and has really connected to a whole bunch of people. And and for some people, it's been the reason they've got into conservation as well. Yeah, I've actually met Sirocco long before I ever went to volunteer with Kākāpō. When I was 11, he came to Mangatautui, and I was able to see him there. Very special. Kākāpō, they became so rare that they thought they were extinct for a long time. Uh, and then they knew of a few males in Fiordland, but they only knew of males, so they were functionally extinct. And then they found a population of one or 200 down on Rakiura, Stewart Island. Since then, the population has always been very low, but they had to take them off of the mainland and Stewart Island to put them on safe predator-free islands for them to start to recover. And in doing so, there hasn't been a kakapo on the mainland for roughly 40 years. The North Island, though, it's been closer to 200 years since there was a kakapo there, and they were once one of our most common birds. And a milestone was reached when... Four young males were translocated into Mangatauturi mainland eco-sanctuary. It's the largest eco-sanctuary in New Zealand. I think it's around 3,000 hectares. It's got this incredible, super long predator-proof fence, which had to be kākāpō-proofed before they were put in there. Although I've been told there is no such thing as a kākāpō-proof fence, I'm sure they tried their very best. Kākāpō can't fly, but they really think they can. They will jump up a tree that's swaying in the wind and wait for it to get to the right momentum before they jump off and just glide down so that could be one way they get over the fence but so far they're settling in quite well apparently I would assume they're quite heavy birds as well yeah I think they're about a few kilograms that's quite a hefty bird so you wouldn't expect them to glide very gracefully if they did choose to do that no you probably don't hear too much about seabirds but they have a special place for me as well I really enjoy seeing birds on the water especially because our oceans are so interconnected that you never really know what's going to happen when you're out in a boat. This seabird actually came to me, kind of, it came to land, and I was in Gore at the time, passing through to go meet a friend who works for Doc down in Southland to do some weight accounts, and he, he called me as I was passing through Gore on the way from Dunedin and said, this king penguin's just walked up on the beach, uh, do you want to go and take photos of it to see how it is? And it couldn't have been 
more perfect timing. It had shown up in a place called Fortrose. It was the nearest bit of coast to me at the time, about 45 minutes drive. And we went down there and we searched for a couple of hours, no sign at all. Uh, so he said that he was going to go check on the other side of the spit, which is like five kilometers long. It could have been anywhere along there. And uh, we decided to follow. And as we rocked up, frantic waving and yelling, and they picked up this king penguin in the scope about a kilometer down the beach, uh, which is really exciting. So if you're not familiar, king penguin is the second largest species of penguin. It stands probably almost a meter tall. And they don't breed in New Zealand, but they do visit more regularly than you might think. Uh, they breed on Macquarie Island, just to the south of us, up in Antarctic Islands. And they do come here to molt every now and then. Lots of penguins come to molt on New Zealand's mainland, more than uh, anyone realises, because we don't often encounter them, but they are there. King penguins have shown up on the mainland about a dozen times. Yeah. And that was a really special encounter as well. We saw it go out to sea, so we didn't think it was coming back. But it was seen again a few days later as well and potentially stuck around for a few weeks. That's absolutely amazing to experience a penguin like that. That, as you say, it does come onto our coastline, but it's pretty rare that you'd get to experience that. And to be so close to you at the time as well, that's just perfect timing. And I bet you got some great photos of that too. can always get more photos. <laughs> I love that. I agree. I agree. The rifleman still escapes me. In Dunedin, we've got some right in the town belt. Oh, that's that's absolutely incredible. I wish I could experience that. Dunedin also, I found out through an article on my favourite invertebrate, which is Naohiohi, has the most amazing population of them just in a pile of bricks at someone's home in Dunedin. Yeah, I did see that. I found them a few times in our local park. It was at this moment that both Oscar and I realised that we had actually been on a trip together <laughs> to a park in Dunedin and had found a massive group of Naokioki or Peripetus. And then we started to talk about our memories and adventures around Dunedin because we've had a few now. Absolutely incredible. We found tons. It was amazing. Yeah, I've never seen that many in a group together. Were you at the waterfall walk as well? It was the same night. I, yeah, I yeah. think so. And I photographed a spider that hadn't yeah. been photographed before, put it on an iNaturalist, and somehow someone identified it from like a random a citation 50 years ago from someone's description of them in the area, which I was very impressed by. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. That is so cool nature there's so much that is undiscovered still and it's just so cool when you find those things and and if you hadn't taken that photo or if you didn't know necessarily if we didn't have the community on iNaturalist that likes to ID things then it could very easily go unknown that that's a new observation or a new photo as well are an incredible wildlife photographer if I do say so myself I've been on some pretty cool adventures with you and it's been really awesome to see the behind the scenes of those photos but I'd love to hear how has that added to your nature connection experience thank you I think photography is a very important way to engage with nature it really opens my eyes specifically to 
how wildlife interacts with each other, with its environment, how it goes about its day to day. It's one thing to go and photograph something once, but to actually watch it over time and see what changes uh, across a day or a season or a year uh, is really eye-opening and I think useful uh, if you're going to do longer-term research of a species, uh, which I think is particularly important to see which of our species, you know, needs the most help. You know, it's clear what's endangered in some cases, but it's not always clear what's driving that. And photography provides a different angle uh, among many other things to look into that. Um, there's so many different benefits. I could spend hours talking about how wildlife photography is useful, but I think the one that comes to mind is how it can be used to inspire and raise awareness. I'm quite lucky to have lots of people on social media who like my photos and I try to get specific tidbits and informative facts to go with them so that they take something home, not just enjoy the pretty pictures. Yeah, for sure. It's such an amazing form of science communication. And to take that to the next level, I guess, you've got this amazing social media following, but you've also now got something else. A Naturalist Guide to the Birds of New Zealand, Oscar Thomas, second edition, out now. Yeah, I should probably start from the beginning and yep. say that <laughs> my, I had a friend, Liz Light, who uh, was a fan of my photos and was also a member of Bird New Zealand, and she was publishing a book called The 50 Best Bird Watching Sites of New Zealand and wanted to use some of my photos in that. She ended up using quite a lot of them, and I ended up helping her with the actual conception of the book and that came out and was quite successful and the next year the publishers who John Burfoy Publishing they're based in London were quite keen to do a proper guide to the birds of New Zealand and Liz suggested that they approach me for that and one thing led to another and it took me about a year but I managed to piece together uh, the naturalist guide to the birds of New Zealand mostly my own photos but I don't have photos of everything yet so I'm very uh, grateful for friends who allowed me to use their photos in the book that covered 238 birds of New Zealand and released in 2020. As we know books go out of date quite fast so for the reprints this year uh, we have made the second edition with over 200 new photos and rounded up the species to a nice round 250. I would love to hear more about that publishing journey then. So what is it like producing a book? What were the challenges? What were some of the wins along the way as well? I wasn't actually in New Zealand at the time. I was on exchange. Uh, I spent here in Belgium in 2019, which was fantastic and allowed me to, to spend some time focusing on this. But also I couldn't go out and I couldn't get any new photos or learn anything new in the field. One thing I did do was take a lot of trains and that had a lot of, gave me a lot of time to put a pen to paper and get my thoughts out and then fact check those and make sure everything was ready. I finished writing the book two weeks into coming to uni down here in Dunedin. So shortly after I came back to New Zealand and if you knew me the first two weeks of uni, you would have known, you probably wouldn't have known me. I was quite reclusive. Uh, hiding away all day and all night finishing it um, but it came together and I think it went quite well anyone can write a book <laughs> I'm lucky that they asked me and it wasn't the other way around it's inspiring to see so many young people writing books these days 
and it's awesome to to know some of those people and to be able to buy their books as well and to have them on my bookshelf over here and to be one of those things that I use in the field because you know it's it's one thing to have an amazing guide for the creatures that we get to see to be able to help people connect to those creatures and to learn those facts but to also know that someone that you know a friend of yours has created this and put so much time and effort into the creation of this is pretty cool yeah so another couple projects kind of spawned from that liz light passed away shortly after the 50 best bird watching sites came out so the publishers actually asked if i wanted to revise that as well which i was very um gracious and happy to do uh i pretty much left it as it was because she'd done such an amazing job and had a very specific way of describing these places. Liz wasn't a birder, but she was she was a travel writer and she had such a lovely way of writing. I did have to shuffle around a few of the sites and had a couple more relevant to Dunedin, including Orokanui Eco Sanctuary, I think deserved to mention. That will also be out the second edition of the 50 Best Bird Watching Sites, October this year. And also Sam Purdy... His book came out last year. That was the Field Naturalist Guide to the Reptiles and Amphibians of New Zealand. It's a mouthful. So I suggested him for that role, and I'm very glad that I did. I think he really enjoyed it and smashed it out of the park. It really puts my book to shame. So, yeah, it's spawned a whole lot of different opportunities, and it's still going. I know there is another one in the works. I don't think I can give anything away just yet, but I'm excited to see it. Awesome. That's such a journey. And I think it's amazing to be able to work with such cool people in this field and to collaborate on those and to know when you're the right person and when you can just shoulder tap someone else for those roles as well. You've been on lots of expeditions. Would you like to tell us a story from one of those? So I've just been in the field last month to preemptively trial some of my master's field work. It's, it's very early days. It's, this project has come about over the span of the last like three and a half months at, at breakneck speed, um, but it's quite exciting. We are looking at the southern New Zealand dotterel, the Daco, and where they go in the summertime. There's only 126 of them left at last count in March this year. So they are critically endangered. They're the rarest of the doctoral family. Uh, they are only considered a subspecies of the New Zealand doctoral by most authorities, but there could be scope to split them from the northerns, which are doing quite, quite a bit better. Uh, but they are quite different. They're larger. They've got darker plumage. And the northern subspecies, which breeds on sandy beaches and stays there all year round, is quite um, tame compared to the very extreme subalpine nesting southern New Zealand doctoral. They are known to nest on the mountaintops of Rakiura, Stewart Island. They would have been found up to two and a half thousand metres on the southern Alps as well, but no longer nest on the South Island that we know of. But the 126 that remain of those, we kind of know the location of about 20% of them over the nesting season, over the summer period. So they count them in winter when they flock uh, down at the coast, main sites being Mason Bay and Ardador Bay. Uh, but they, yeah, they go off and nest some, somewhere in the summertime, probably somewhere backcountry, Rakiura, 
uh, but that location is not clear. And because of that, we can't really protect them when, during this very vulnerable time in their lives. The reason they're so rare and they are continuing to decline at a rate that could see them extinct by 2030 uh, is mainly because of predation and mainly from feral cats. Uh, that's what the data indicates, at least. And as a result, DOC is funneling all of their resources into trapping around the nesting grounds of the southern Rule to protect them. But if you only know where five pairs are nesting, you're only protecting that small fraction of the population. Uh, there's not much good you can do. So what we have done is put trackers on birds that we don't know where they nest, and we'll be following them throughout the summer to see where they go. We managed to tag three birds last month. We were hoping for more, but they proved very hard to catch. Uh, so it was good to get a practice run in before the proper field work next year. Yeah, for sure. And I can imagine that's really difficult to get them. And it would be so interesting to find out where they are heading to nest as well, because if they're heading that far up the mountaintops, or they could be, then that could be some interesting field work for sure. Luckily, Rakiura only goes up to just under a thousand meters, um, but they could surprise us. They could head to the Southern Alps. They could go somewhere even like Big South Cape Island off the very bottom of Rakiura, which is predator free. Maybe that's the only reason there are still some chicks surviving this onslaught of feral cats. Who knows? We'll have to wait and see what the data says. Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. You've also been on lots of expeditions on the sea and you've talked about your love of seabirds. So now's your time. Nerd out about these amazing seabirds that we have. I quite regularly charter boats out of Otago and split the cost with anyone who's willing or very, very keen to come out and photograph or just observe our amazing diverse suite of seabirds that we have here in New Zealand, the seabird capital of the world. There's no no two trips are alike. There's no knowing what you'll see out there on the water. As I said, this ocean is all connected and anything can show up anywhere. I spent the summer working for Monarch Wildlife Cruises as well, and will continue to do so this summer. Uh, they just run little hour-long cruises around the Tairoa Head Royal Albatross Colony, which is only a 40-minute drive from Dunedin and very special in that it's the only mainland colony of albatross anywhere in the world. So we've got them right on our doorstep. They just are found all throughout the Southern Ocean, but they breed here, right right in Dunedin. So we're very lucky to have them there. A few months ago on the Monarch, we saw this bird after like 300 trips. There was this thing that no one recognized but me. Just a few meters from me hovering by the boat was a thing called a great shearwater, which is a species that is normally found in the Atlantic Ocean, but happens to be here right on the other side of the world. Uh, so that was very exciting, and I managed to make the 40 other people on board very excited as well. It's only the 11th time one's been seen in New Zealand, and I think the first for about a decade. So that was very cool. Just one of the many examples of things that, that can turn up, because seabirds can travel so far. I mean, albatrosses have been recorded at going over a 1,000 kilometres in a day, breaking records, going over 100 kilometres per hour. You know, they can smell their food from 20 kilometers away. They don't need the land. They don't want the land for anything other than laying an egg. So we're going into their world when we go out on a boat. 
That's not even to mention uh, the non-birds, which we have quite a few of as well. We've got resident pods of shepherd's beaked whales and longfin pilot whales and sperm whales all within a couple dozen kilometres of Dunedin. So we're very privileged to be able to go out and observe those and photograph them and catalogue them and see how long they're living and if they stick around and answer many other questions that we can't really do with birds unless people manage to catch them and ban them. We're lucky to have identifiable marks on cetaceans like sperm whale flukes, which are unique to the individual and allow us to track them throughout time. What an amazing job that you've got being able to go out and and also enthuse other people about these incredible creatures that they probably don't know what they are until you let them know as well. And, and I'm sure when you saw that amazing bird, the excitement that you would have just given off would have been like radiating from you and everyone would have been so excited by the end of that trip I'm sure. I was lucky to be holding my camera in my arms which is not very common while I'm on the job but it was pretty much the right place at the right time. We saw it for about 10 minutes and it was never seen again. Wow. Bird of the year or this year bird of the century would you like to talk about that bird of the year has been very big in new zealand for a while now it grows in popularity with every year and almost seems to pick up a new gimmick every year but that's that's fine you know anything to keep it relevant and in the public eye i first became involved with bird of the year when i was 13 I helped with the Kokako campaign, and then in 2015, I started running it, which we didn't win that year, but in 2016, we managed to scrape away a victory. I think we got just over 3,000 votes, and it was in part thanks to the Rotahu Ecological Trust, who helped uh, actually maintain the Kokako population near Rotorua in the central North Island, one of the larger ones now. Uh, as well as Carolyn Robinson at Seven Sharp, who approached me and said it's her favourite bird too, we should do a piece on it. So I think that's what gave Kokako the edge that year. Uh, very exciting. I really enjoyed campaigning for it and just being able to raise awareness of such special birds. And after that, though, I decided to give other birds a chance and, and stop campaigning myself. Uh, it's been... It's been a while now, and a lot of things have happened. A bat has won. Kokako hasn't won again, but Kakapo has won twice and would have won a third time if if the bat wasn't included. So I've decided to throw my weight behind my master's species and help the Southern Doctoral go for bird of the century this year. I think it's it's a long road to, to try and get the crown, but it would be worthwhile to throw one of our most endangered species back into the public eye. Amazing. So everyone listening, that's one of the birds that you can vote for. There's so many amazing manu, so many amazing birds that we have here in Aotearoa and a lot of them are critically endangered. A lot of them are endangered. There's also some extinct in the running this year as well. I wouldn't be surprised if one of the more well-known ones like Huia took the crown. No complaints there, Uh, but we do also have the lovely snipe always in the running as well one of my favorites it's a cryptic little wader which no one ever sees because it's gone from the mainland uh despite being a wader it likes to live in very dense vegetation 
uh, can still be found on small islands down in the subantarctic and in the chathams but yeah the extinct south island snipe was one of the three species that went extinct when rats invaded big south cape island in the 1960s alongside the bush wren and the the greater short-tailed bat it was just the south island saddleback that managed to be translocated successfully to a different island in time yeah i think it's really cool to draw attention to all these things you know every bird has a story and I think everyone deserves to know these stories and uh, respect and care about them and hopefully change their ways to give them a better chance in the future. Yeah, definitely agree with that. Do you play Wingspan, the board game? I do. Yeah, I oh. actually received it as a gift twice in the same year <laughs> from my mum and my flatmates. And my mum didn't think it would be a problem because she asked me if I had it, but she asked me 10 months in advance. And in that time, someone had already gifted it to me. That sounds like my kind of planning for presents as well. I I see something and I'm like, oh, you know, this will be great for Christmas next year for so-and-so. <laughs> I managed to exchange one for the Oceania expansion. Nice. Yeah. It's so fun. I just really like the little player eggs, the little tokens. They're just so fun to play with. The eggs look quite tasty, right? Like little chocolate eggs. They really do. It could get quite yeah. confusing. I would definitely like to first shoot at some point with all those expansion packs. Definitely. If you could spend some time photographing one native creature, what would it be? We have to narrow it down to living ones because this extinct ones are too easy. South Island Kulkaku kind of tiptoes the line there it's neither living nor dead <laughs> it was declared extinct and then actually revoked after a sighting was accepted many more sightings have been made there's a couple hundred sightings every year probably related to the fact that there is a five thousand dollar bounty if you can prove it uh, but no one has ever been able to prove it but we can still live in hope that is one that i would definitely like to photograph uh, a little bit more realistic, but also not really, is the only endemic species of bird barring the South Island Kolkako, which has no photos of it in the wild. And that is the Auckland Island Rail. Mm. There are half a dozen photos in existence. One is in captivity 50 years ago from one they took to Mount Bruce, Pukaha Mount Bruce, and the rest are all in the hand. I was browsing through eBird photo database the other day, and this was the only endemic bird to New Zealand that didn't have a photo. There's over 52 million photos on that website. So, you know, pretty poor going, really. And there is a there is a good reason for this, though. They are only found on a couple islands where no one's allowed to go. But I, I do hear that even if people go to those islands, and they often do to, you know, research seabirds and things like that, they can spend months there and not see this bird. Wow. Very cryptic, very small. We don't know if they can fly, but I would like to go to these islands. They live on Adams Island and Disappointment Island and see if I can find them and photograph them. Wow, I absolutely love that. And I also love the names of the islands and want to know why one was called Disappointment Island. Was yeah, it because they it's... couldn't find it? They couldn't find the bird? It could be. I think it's become a bit of a meme. I'll see if I can dredge up a, a little, quick little 
The entomology of Disappointment Island is unclear. However, the naming of the islands that lacked resources, such as the Disappointment Islands, may have been a contributing factor. It is also possible that frequent shipwrecks may have influenced the island's name as well. It is like a barren rock with seabirds, so it wouldn't be the best place to be shipwrecked unless you did have enough food and water. Yeah, that does make sense. That would be very disappointing. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me tonight, Oscar. It's been an absolute pleasure having these chats about our amazing native manu that we have here. And it's so incredible to think about the things that have been before, the things that are here now in very low numbers that are really hard to find, as well as all of the amazing creatures that are much easier to access for a lot of people as well. So thank you for sharing about your favorite manu because they're all amazing and deserve to be shared about. Likewise, thank you very much for having me. Now, if you'd like to join our listener community, head over to our link tree. This is linktr.ee forward slash theseedpod underscore nz. This is a place where you're able to find links to all of our social media platforms, listening platforms, and also, if you wish to, you can subscribe to our mailing list. Thanks.